Hey, everybody, and welcome back to National Park After Dark. My name is Danielle. And my name is Cassie. And are we on episode 10? Uh, yeah. Wow. Episode 10. What have you, have you been up to anything cool this week or? Yeah, I, I went hiking today and that was fun. And I actually, okay, so I was hiking and we got to the top of this mountain and I picked this hike kind of randomly. It was just close by and it was a nice day and it wasn't too far away because we started hiking around three o'clock today. So we didn't have that much time and we get to the top and there's a a couple people up there and there's this dog and I just assumed it was these people's dog because they were hanging out with him and didn't think anything of it. He came up to me. He came up, said hi. He's super cute, old, golden. And I'm talking to these people and they tell me this dog is not theirs. First off, this dog is a dog that comes up there every single day. He hikes up by himself every single day to the top of this mountain and he just hangs out with the hikers he doesn't go with his owners what yes i swear to god and they did a little documentary on him and his brother he had a brother golden retriever named baylor and both of them together every single day they would leave their house and together they would hike this mountain and they would go to the top and they would hang out with all the hikers up there for the day and they would stay all day and then when dinner time came around, they knew like the timing of it. They would hike back down and go home every single How day. How far is this? It's three point seven miles. Okay, so not terrible, but so the owners literally just like open their door and they're like, "All right, later." No, that's the thing is the owners would lock their doors. They'd try and get these dogs so they couldn't escape. These dogs would find ways out of their house every single time. They would try and, like, lock them in. They would figure out how to open the doors, locked doors. They would figure out how to open them, and they would escape, and they would run up this mountain. The owners didn't even take these dogs hiking on this mountain. The dogs found the trails and followed the hikers up and then just started doing this hike every day. And the owners eventually were like, you know, we've tried to keep them in, and we can't, and this is what they love to do. They're meant to do this, and... She was saying, I was watching the documentary, and she said, Samson is the other dog who I met today. She's like, he's a healer. He's meant to be up there. And when I was up there today, I watched him and every single hiker that came up. When they sat down and, like, got settled in, he went to every single one of them and sat and, like, leaned on them and said hi and, like, stayed with them for a couple minutes. And then someone else would come and he would go say hi to them. And he literally went to every single person. And sat down and said hi to them. That's the most wholesome thing I've ever heard. And his brother, his brother died a few months ago. And I, they've been together since they were puppies. But he still goes up every single day without his brother since he died. And he goes up every day and he hangs up at the top. And this dog is 12 years old. Yeah, for a golden, that's old. He doesn't, he's just trucking along. He moves a little slow up there, but I mean, he's just trucking along and says hi to everybody. And and I was just like, this is the sweetest thing I've ever heard of in my whole life. Sure, keep him young. Yeah. (laughs) You know? You look up Stowe Pinnacle Mountain Dogs, there's just a 15-minute video of the dogs hiking, and they put little bells on them so hunters don't confuse them for deer. And they just, like, hike up the trail, and 
it shows all the height. They put a little camera on the dogs so you can see like their view and all the people who just say hi to them and people are like, wait, this dog's by himself. He's not like with anyone. And they're like, no, he just hikes here every day. That is really cool. I did just look it up and I'm saving it so I can watch it tonight. You should. That is really cool. Isn't it so What a cool... cool... And you just randomly... Just like, ran... you didn't even know about them. I had no idea. When I got up there, I thought it was just, like, a random dog. And no. Like, what? Where Where are his parents? He's like, not here. He hikes here by himself every day. I wow. Like, I was like, that's the cutest thing I've ever heard in my whole life. I'm going to um, send this article to my family because we have a timeshare in Stowe. So I think they'll find it really Yeah, you cool. should. Yeah. That's great. It's a highlight of my day for sure. And then I posted it on Instagram because I just felt like everyone would love him as much as I did. Everyone should love him because that's amazing. Right? What a story. Well, not to drag you down, but I feel like time to get into my story today. Time to talk about creepy dead things. Yeah, here we go. <laughs> This week, I kind of, so I have kind of like a outline rubric of episode topics I want to cover. This week's episode topic was on there, but it was kind of like planned for a month or two from now, but I bumped it up to this Ooh. week because of an email we got from someone. So I bumped it up. I'm excited to share it with you because it is one of my favorite national parks. Actually, it might be my favorite national park I've ever been to so far. I'm pumped. Yeah, so but before we get started with your story, we do have an announcement to make. And if you follow us on Instagram, you probably saw it there. But we are going to be doing a live show. We're going to be telling campfire, ghost stories, paranormal. We haven't decided what story we're going to tell, but it's going to be creepy. We could promise that. And it's going to be at the Over and Out Moto event in Tamaquah, Pennsylvania. And this is an all-women's event. Sorry, guys, we will do a live show that guys can come to as well. But for this show, it is an all women's event and it is a motorcycle group for women that go all level riders. If you've never been on a motorcycle before, don't worry about it. They have beginner lessons to literally starting a bike and putting it in first gear. But it's for all levels. It's also dual sport rides, trail rides, everything it's a very cool weekend, and at night, after everyone's done riding and eating food and stuff, we're going to sit around the campfire, eat some s'mores, and Danielle and I are going to be telling some spooky stories, and we are so stoked for it. I'm excited for the ghost story aspect of it. Um, as far as the riding aspect of it, I'm going to need to sign up for that class of putting the bike in first gear. And getting on it properly and all of that. So if yes. anybody is if anybody's intimidated about the theme of the weekend, it should be me. So But honestly, last year when I was there, there were so many women who went that it was their dream to learn how to ride a motorcycle and they were always scared because they didn't want to be around a bunch of guys who had been riding forever. They felt more comfortable with women and there were a bunch of girls there that had literally never ridden a dirt bike before and they went through this class and they have these easy trails for beginners that and they were like ripping around on those trails all weekend after they got like the basics down so it's literally for any type of rider and all right 
I'm stoked. I want you to get on a bike. I'll be so excited. I mean, I will. It's just, it's not going to be very pretty at first. It's just, it's a lot of fun. doesn't matter if you're good or not. It's just fun. <laughs> okay. I'll take your word for it. I'm sure it is going to be, but I have a few months to prepare. So yeah, that event is going to be in September. Um, and we will give more details as the date approaches, but the woman organizing it did let us know that they are already sold two-thirds of their tickets. So if you are interested in coming to that and seeing us do a live event, then go to our, we'll post it on our website. We're going to do a little bit of a website update. So we can post the flyer on our website. Yeah, we'll post it on our website, but also you can go over to Over and Out Moto on Instagram, and you can also go onto their website as well, overandoutmoto.com, and tickets are right on there too if you're interested in going. And they are selling out quick with COVID restrictions and everything. There is a cap for the amount of people. It is going to be COVID-friendly. Honestly, I can't think of a more COVID-friendly event because everyone has helmets on and goggles. Literally, your entire face is covered. So <laughs> it's a good it's a good a pandemic activity. So, Pandemic-friendly, yeah. Yeah, it's pandemic-friendly for sure. Awesome. I think that's pretty much it for announcements and stuff other than thank you to all the Patreon members who – got back to us and responded to us about our first campfire story. We have released one other episode, listener story episode bonus type deal before that last month. But this month is the first month that we really kicked off the monthly bonus stories that we have now dubbed campfire stories. And those are available only on Patreon. Doesn't matter what tier you are, every Patreon member has full access to all of the bonus content as far as those stories go. And a fun little teaser for that is for this month's extra Patreon episode, we do talk about Bigfoot and there's a ghost story. So go on to Patreon, subscribe. We really appreciate it, but also the story is really cool and it's really fun. And we plan on doing more stories like that on there as well. Yeah. All right, so how about, how do you feel about coming over to Washington with me and exploring Olympic National Park? I feel like I'm going back in time to when we were actually in Olympic National Park. It feels like it was forever ago, but it, in reality, was not that long ago. I wish we could post some of our own personal photos of us in the park together, but unfortunately, we both have boyfriends who take horrible photos of us and they will not be posted anywhere no one will see those photos ever our experience was okay girls go stand over there in the middle of this trail and we're gonna lay on the ground and take a picture of you directly under your chins so it looks like your faces are distorted you look 50 pounds heavier than you actually are Emphasis and it's on out of multiple chins. It's bad. You have have you ever seen those things? It's like pictures I take of him versus pictures he takes of me. <laughs> yes. Because I know I have amazing pictures of Ian, and I know you probably have amazing pictures of Al. Yeah. And it's just like, like they look so handsome, and then it's like, and here's their troll girlfriends. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's just not, I don't know. Either way, I don't even know what we're talking about. So we're just going to go 
into the story. We're going to Olympic National Park. (laughs) We're going to Olympic National Park. Here we go. Hey, everybody. It's Danielle here. Before the story starts, I just wanted to let you know of a quick correction. During this episode, I'm going to tell you a couple different stories, but one of them has to do with a woman named Hallie Illingworth. And in the episode, I kept referring to her as Haley, and that's totally my bad. Her name is Hallie, and unfortunately, based on Cassie and I's schedules, three-hour time difference, etc., we didn't have time to re-record the episode before it was scheduled to come out. So instead, I'm just going to put this little correction in before the episode starts to let you know of my mistake. Please forgive me, Hallie. So very sorry. Please don't come and haunt me. Everybody else, enjoy the show. First of all, like I kind of mentioned before, I did bump up this story uh, because of an email that we got from someone. So I want to shout her out. Her name is Emma Grace. She wrote in with a suggestion for a topic, and it happened to be one of the ones that I was going to cover. So I elaborated a little bit and went into a little more detail, but she did write in and suggested this. And she did say that her dad is the city planner for the city of Forks, and he's also a historian. And this topic is one that they talk about a lot in their family, which I thought was just really, really cool. One, because when I was little, me and my dad talked about history all the time. It was something we really bonded over. So I thought that was rad. And also, and I know this is just like maybe knocking me down a few notches in a lot of people's minds, but when the whole like Twilight thing came out, I was so about Forks, Washington, and I just thought it was the coolest place. (laughs) We all have our guilty pleasures. All right. People are like, okay, episode 10, we're done with this. We're going to Olympic National Park. We're going to Olympic National Park. Here we go. (laughs) Located in the northwest corner of the state of Washington, Olympic National Park takes up much of the Olympic Peninsula. A lot of the park is actually really remote and pretty hard to access, but there are four different areas that offer the nearly 3.5 million annual visitors access to the to parts of the park. So this is a really popular park and for good reason. So it was named after the Olympic mountains that it encompasses. And the park was actually established in 1938 by President Franklin D. Roosevelt, but it was first designated as a national monument back in 1909. This park has it all. It has 922,651 acres that includes 73 miles of wilderness coastline, 3,000 miles of rivers and streams, snow-capped mountains and glaciers, and even rainforest. So the the Ho Rainforest is probably the most popular. It's one of the few remaining temperate rainforests in the U.S. Every year, this rainforest receives about 12 feet of rain and if you've ever been in this area it's not hard to imagine i mean it's raining here all the time it was raining Um, when we were in the ho rainforest a little bit it was like sprinkling mm -hmm. yeah like i mentioned olympic national park has a bunch of different areas of interest so if you want to climb mountains you can do that if you want to spend time on the beach there's tons of miles of coastline for that and a lot of people go there For recreational activities that include not just hiking and lounging on the beach, but they want to go kayaking 
with all those rivers and streams and lakes. But there is one lake in particular that draws a ton of people to it every single year. And for good reason. And that is Lake Crescent. Lake Crescent formed as retreating glaciers carved out deep valleys during the last ice age about 11,000 years ago. And it remains one of the most visited spots in all of Olympic National Park. Measuring nearly 12 miles long and measuring about 600 feet deep, which is, just to put it in perspective, that's deeper than the Space Needle is tall. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Have you been up there? Have you been up to the, like, observation? No, but I've seen it. I mean, I haven't been up to the top, but I can imagine. You know, reading numbers, it's hard to put it in perspective, but I was just at the Space Needle for the first time a couple weeks ago, actually, maybe about a month ago. So hearing that, I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, so the location of the lake is actually located just a few miles from the Strait of Juan de Fuca, which is... If you're looking at a map where the peninsula is, Olympic Peninsula, there's a small strip of water, and that's the Strait of Juan de Fuca, and that separates Washington from Vancouver Island. So that part of the ocean is where the Salish Sea and the Pacific Ocean meet, and it serves as the international border. So historically, Lake Crescent was used as part of a route from Port Townsend, which is kind of on the eastern part of the peninsula, to the western parts of the peninsula because there were no connecting roads. And this was a really long lake. Like I said, it's about 12 miles long. So steamboats were used as a form of transportation that would bring park guests to and from various areas of the peninsula. And that started when it was quote-unquote, discovered by the first white settlers in the 1860s. So like I said, it was designated as a national monument in 1909. And before then, when people were visiting the area, and as the park was starting to get up and running as a formal park, they didn't have a highway until 1922. The first people were using this lake kind of as like a Sea Highway. And the lake drew thousands of visitors, and several lakeshore resorts started to pop up around this lake. Everyone was drawn to it. So, some of the most notable hotels and resorts are Hotel Crescent, Rosemary Inn at Barnes Point, Mary Mare Hotel, and Singer's Lake Crescent Tavern, which is now known as Lake Crescent Lodge. The lake's waters are crystal clear, and in some areas, you can see up to 60 feet down. The popular activities there are kayaking, sailing, and swimming. Lake Crescent has drawn in people for centuries, and if you heed the legends of the Klalem and Quillette, two of the local indigenous tribes, you'll learn that it doesn't give up its secrets or its bodies very easily. Today, I'm going to tell you about some of those bodies who have found rest in the lake. Oh, okay. You're going with super creepy this week. I am, yeah. Conditions were calm and quiet on the afternoon of July 6, 1940 on Crescent Lake. Louis Rolfe and his brother were fishing the deep turquoise waters close to Sledgehammer Point when they noticed an object floating close to the shoreline. Intrigued, the brothers paddled towards it to investigate. As they got closer, they were shocked to find this mystery object was actually a body of a woman. She was hogtied with heavy rope, wearing a green dress, and was wrapped in two gray striped blankets. As horrific as this initial discovery was, the details of the state of the body were even more disturbing. 
this body had not decomposed in the traditional way that we think of decomposition. Her body had undergone saponification, which is a natural chemical process which occurs when fats are exposed to a very alkaline substance. This, combined with the mineral-rich environment and the cool waters of Lake Crescent, aided, aided in preserving the woman's body. Well, kind of. The body had no recognizable face, was marble white, the tips of her fingers were missing, as well as her upper lip and her nose. Most interestingly, the entire corpse was a soapy-like substance known as adipocere. It could literally be scooped away like putty. Oh, God. And this is the body, like, ah. Oh. Yeah, it's her body had, like, undergone this bit. Yeah. That description of being able to scoop. Oh. I know. It was a little bit of a graphic analogy, but it really got the message across because I can picture it in my mind very easily. I wish my face would pop over everyone's headphones right now or whatever you're listening in. So you hopefully it's it. headphones. Yeah, hopefully it's headphones <laughs> and not people will be like, What are you doing over there? Okay, so the brothers quickly made their way back to the docks and explained what they had found to Superintendent A.D. Immenroth who was really skeptical at first, but followed the brothers back to the body after their insistence. The Clallam County Prosecutor, Coroner Ralph Smith, and Sheriff Charlie Kemp arrived at the scene and retrieved the body from the lake once Immenroth confirmed what they had found. The autopsy concluded that the woman had been severely beaten and the cause of death was strangulation. She was then tied with rope, wrapped in blankets, and weighed down with rocks before being thrown into the lake. Eventually, the ropes holding her body to the bottom of the lake rotted away, and thanks to the saponification, which made the body very light, it floated to the surface. It was estimated that she had been in the lake for three years. News of this discovery spread quickly, and she was dubbed Lady of the Lake. But who was she? As they were trying to figure out who this lady was, they actually buried her in a potter's field near Port Angeles while an investigation into her identity was being conducted. Although she was exhumed twice for continued examination during this entire process. The initial theory was that the body belonged to Marion Frances Steffens, a 33-year-old botanist from Chicago. She was visiting Mount Olympus, which is um, one of the mountains within Olympic National Park, which is actually the tallest and most prominent mountain in the park. And she went missing. So she went missing in 1939, which was a year before Lady of the Lake was discovered. So they thought maybe it could be her because all that had been found of Marion was a bundle of her camping gear and belongings that had been found by rangers near the Ho River Trail. However, the clothing on the Lady of the Lake did not match the description of what Steffens was wearing. It took over a year for the mystery to begin to unravel. Like so many cases, it was through dental records that she was finally identified. She had a unique six-tooth dental plate, which Hollis B. Foltz, a criminologist with the Washington State Pathologist's Office, took pictures of and published in regional dental magazines. A dentist in South Dakota recognized this plate as the one he had made for a former patient finally identifying, identifying the Lady of the Lake as Haley Latham Illingworth. So let's talk a little bit about Haley. She was born in Greenville, Kentucky on January 7th, 1901. 
After two failed marriages, she moved west in hopes of a fresh start. She was 35 in the year of 1936 when she began work as a barmaid at the Lake Crescent Lodge, and it was here in June of that year that she met Montgomery Monty J. Illingworth, who was a local beer truck driver. They dated very briefly, and when I say very briefly, I mean whirlwind type of romance. It was only a couple months between when they met to when they got married. Recipe and, for a successful third marriage. Yeah, you would think that maybe she had some prior experience with what not to do, but who knows? There wasn't much information that I could find on her and her previous marriages before this situation, so who knows? And, you know, Montgomery Monty was dick, so it's not her fault. <laughs> Oh, we know where this is going now. <laughs> yeah, I know. Unfortunately, it's always the husband. Unless it's the wife. Unless it's the wife. Yeah. From Snapped, we know that we know. it goes both ways, honey. Like I said, they dated very briefly, but it was by no means a fairy tale relationship. And it was actually quite the opposite. Their neighbors complained all the time and actually reported several times to the police about loud fights between the couple so they fought all the time and they weren't too quiet about it either and co-workers of hers at the lodge actually recounted her showing up to work with bruises and occasional black eyes and one day in december of 1937 she didn't show up to work she was last seen on December 22nd, 1937, when she was at her apartment waiting for Monty to return from a party that he had attended in Port Townsend. Monty stated that she ran off with another man to Alaska, but her sister states she saw her days before she went missing and was completely unaware of any new relationship, and she was very suspicious of her whereabouts and of Monty. Monty became a lead suspect in her murder, once she was identified. So once the, because if you remember, this is now three years later. He had told everyone that she went to Alaska. Right. So his story was she never turned up to work because she had run away to Alaska with another guy. And then three years pass and then her body surfaces in the lake. So now everyone's looking at him like, oh, really? Okay. Also, then typical excuse. I feel like people say that, oh, she left me for another man. She left the country and then makes her come out to seem like this bad person and really. Yeah, yeah he's trying to turn the tables on, um, on her. Yeah. So Monty quickly became a lead suspect in her murder once she was identified. And he was eventually found living in Long Beach, California with another woman who was a timber heiress named Eleanor Pearson. And it was there that while driving his truck, he was pulled over and arrested for the murder the murder of Haley. Okay, so your wife goes missing and you decide to just leave the state and start over with another woman. Yeah, it's like suspicious. Okay. Suspicious. The trial began on February 24th, 1942. And Monty denied the allegations, of course, and stated that when he had last seen Haley, she was alive. Alive and well, this is before she allegedly ran off to Alaska with another guy. The alleged abuse that occurred in their relationship came up during the trial, and while Monty admitted that this was the norm for their relationship, that it, w it went both ways. So he's like, okay, yes, 
we did get into arguments and there was physical altercations, but she also beat me up too. He repeatedly denied killing her. However, the the testimony from the dentist from South Dakota that identified her dental plate and Haley's friends testifying that the clothes the body was found in belonged to her started to dig Monty's grave. However, the final nail in his coffin came from the rope used to bind Haley. Enter Earl F. Enos. He was the manager of the Port Angeles Distributing Company, and he had actually employed Monty for a time. And he took the stand to identify the rope as the one he had lent to Monty shortly before Haley's disappearance, and Monty never returned that rope. The store still had the remnants from the rope, and the fibers between the two matched. It's the same thing. There's no way he didn't do it. Yeah. From here, it was theorized that the two most likely got into a fight in their apartment when it turned violent and Monty began beating and strangling Haley. Hollis Foltz, a criminologist with the Washington State Attorney General's office who helped investigate the murder, goes on to theorize that Monty tried to conceal the crime by placing Haley's lifeless body in the trunk of his car, drove to Lake Crescent, first stopping in the vicinity of present-day Log Cabin Resort, where he then wrapped his wife's body in blankets and tied the bundle with the rope before hauling her into a rowboat, weighing her down, and dumping her into the lake. This case lasted nine days, and the jurors took only four hours to reach a verdict. On March 5, 1942, Monty was found guilty of second-degree murder and was sentenced to life at the Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla, where he served. And here we go again. Just please guess. Take a wild guess at how long he served. He was sentenced to life. Five years. Nine. Why? How? Was he murdered or he got out? He was paroled in 1951 and died in November. Yep. I know he was paroled in night and he so he was paroled in 1951 and he died in November of 1974 in Los Alamitos, California. That hurts my heart. It's yet another example of how crimes against women are not taken seriously. You're well behaved in prison. You can go back out. And I don't know the specifics of what led to his parole, but it is a pretty common theme that we see a lot even now i mean this was back in the 50s but 70 years later i don't think that we've really um made much of a difference as far as people being sentenced for life for horrific crimes and only serving a fraction of their sentence yeah so haley is now but haley is now buried in park hill cemetery in vancouver washington So that was the Lady of the Lake story, but Lake Crescent still has a couple more up its sleeve. Lake Crescent also holds on to another mystery, this one for over 70 years. Russell Warren picked up his wife Blanche from a visit at the Port Angeles Hospital on July 3rd, 1929. After running a few errands and loading a new washing machine into their 1927 Chevrolet, they drove west along Highway 101 en route towards a camp on the Bogachiel River near Forks. They never reached their destination. It was rumored that the couple missed a curve along the road 
and plunged into the lake and drowned, while others assumed that they had left abruptly, abandoning their two children, whose names were Charles and Frank, and they were only 11 and 13 at the time of their parents' disappearance. But that claim was quickly dismissed by family members that insisted the Warrens were loving parents. Investigations began immediately with no real answers due to the limited abilities of the diving equipment at the time. There were only small items belonging to the pair, like a hat identified as Russell's, ever being found. For over half a century, the trial went as cold as the lake. But then, in 2001, the search had new life breathed into it when a historian named Bob Queso brought the case to the attention of Lake Crescent District Ranger Dan Poinbryant. Park rangers and volunteers conducted exploratory dives with the help of an underwater search and recovery company using a sonar unit to search for clues. In 2002, 73 years after their disappearance, their car was found in more than 170 feet of water about four miles west of Barnes Point near milepost 223 on US 101 in the waters off of Ambulance Point. So that's very specific. It's pretty cool if you're from the area to know because I've been around this lake on this highway, US 101, mm -hmm. and it is so windy. It's not like it's named US 101, you know, highway, whatever. So you're thinking of a highway as just straight roads you go 60, 70 on. This is not the case for this road. It has twists and turns. Going over 40 would be pushing it, I think, on this road. So it's not hard to imagine how easily they could have lost control of the car and plunged right into the water. Yeah, that's scary. It is scary, but it's just crazy that they had been down there for over 70 years. Yeah, and no one found them. And it's not even like they were that far away. They were right there. I'll link the articles in the show notes as always, but they go into detail about when the historian Bob was first recommending that they reinvestigate this case and try and find the car wreck that they are theorizing was in this area. The district park ranger, Dan, was kind of like, even if we do find it, it's kind of eerie and like we don't really want to disturb anything down there because it's it's like a howl ground, like it's a grave site. So when they did find it, they left it there. They just left the car, not their bodies. So their bodies were never found in entirety. There were bones, like femur bones and things like that found. But after 73 yeah. years, they had essentially disintegrated. But it was positively identified as their car and that they had perished in that accident. Okay, so there wasn't anything left to bury of them not that i saw but yeah they kind of just left that area alone and it's kind of just like a it kind of reminds me of and it sounds really weird but it kind of reminds me of titanic it's like you just leave it as it is obviously it's wildly different titanic is in a very very difficult area to access it's not 170 feet underwater you know but it's kind of the same type of deal a lot of shipwrecks and things that are discovered are never brought to the surface they're just kind of left as they are. This story about a body in Lake Crescent gave me chills. The beautiful waters of this lake has also been used by a serial killer. My ears just like perked up so high. I'm like, right up. I have never heard of a serial killer out there. Okay. 
I mean, I have okay. heard of serial killers in Washington, but not like specifically this area. Okay, well, get ready. So I'm not going to go too into him specifically because we'll be talking all night, but I will give you a recommendation on where to find his story. So known as one of the most horrific serial killers in U.S. history, Israel Keys has been linked to 11 murders, including five from 2001 to 2006, while he lived and worked in Nay Bay, located less than two hours from the lake on the Maka Reservation. He admits to dumping at least one of his victims from a boat into the lake by submerging it in over 100 feet of water and weighing it down with anchors. So very similar to what happened to Haley. He states that he hunted down victims in remote locations such as parks, campgrounds, and hiking trails. And his victims ranged, get this, from Vermont to Washington. That's like him murdering me and you. I know. <laughs> And I don't mean to laugh. I'm just like, I laugh when I'm anxious and that creeps. So yeah. like I said, I'm not going to get too super into his story in particular, but just as an overview, he stated that all his victims were completely random. Although he planned the murders themselves meticulously, he even buried caches of supplies, including weapons, money, and tools in pre-planned in pre areas around the country. So he would literally take a plane, fly to a random area, scope it out, bury this murder cache kill kit to come back to in the future, and then randomly pick someone to kill using what he had previously stored there. This reminds me of the Yosemite serial killer, Carrie Stainer, when he carried a kill bag with him all the time just for the opportunity that he would be prepared yeah oh mm -hmm. that's so but, disgusting yeah so if you want to learn more about israel keys i first heard about his story in one of my favorite podcasts called and that's why we drink i looked it up because i'm like i know i heard his story on that podcast so i looked up the particular episode and it's episode 193 and Christine does a deep dive into his case, and I highly recommend it because, like I said, he was a cross-country killer, serial killer. He pre-planned everything. He actually got caught by um, abducting a, a barista from a coffee stand, and that was his downfall. Her murder was the downfall of him, and he got caught, and... He killed himself in jail, so he's no longer around. But if you want to know more, it's just, it's horrific, but it is a very interesting true crime case. But he did use Lake Crescent as a dumping ground, which is totally horrendous. Because you look at the lake, it's so beautiful. And yet so many people have met their end there. And this is just a couple of, high I hate to say highlights, but big name cases of yeah and big name stories of bodies in the lake but tons of people die in the lake every year drowning accidents boating accidents etc so a lot of people meet their end in this lake wow i'm googling it right now because i haven't been there and the water is so clear and so pretty for any washington resident or anyone who has visited this area one of the most popular hikes in olympic is called storm king 
and it brings you up to this overlook overlooking the entire lake and it's beautiful so if you want to google lake crescent and pictures of it i would google lake crescent storm king and you can see like a bird's eye view of the lake it's really really pretty but anyways so i'll put i'll post a picture of the lake of course but remember the area that i told you about where the warren car was found and it was called ambulance point yeah and yeah want to know how it got that name on august 27th 1956 an ambulance swerved off the road and plunged into the lake on its way to a port angeles hospital after picking up an injured lumberjack named ernest monroe dalgren in forks he had broken his leg and was strapped onto the gurney sadly the straps meant to keep him safe during his transport ultimately contributed to his demise as he was unable to escape the ambulance after it crashed into the water the two medics that were with him were able to get out in time but he drowned that's so sad one you have an injury that you would have easily survived and then two the people who are saving you they're trying to save you and this horrible accident happens and then they're actually the ones that cause you that not cause you but like you pick them up to save them and then they end up dying and you can't save them the survivor yeah survivor's guilt on that one is probably very real for those people but this is actually one of my fears and or i wouldn't say fear but definitely something i put considerable thought into anytime i'm on a bridge going over bodies of water so i have a jeep wrangler and you know how I have the net in the back that separates the front two seats from the back for the dogs. Yeah. I always think it's a thought I can't get out of my mind no matter what is if I something happened and I ran off the, the bridge and into the water and was sinking, my dogs would drown in the back because there's no way of I couldn't unroll the window and get them out. I couldn't open the doors too heavy in the back to open like they would have no escape route that's and such I a just... sad thought to have every time you see a bridge yeah like every Aww. single time i'm on a bridge that's what i think of and it's so sad and the other thing that's thinking or speaking of messed up thoughts is um i said it today so we were getting ready to um go hiking and the house was kind of a mess like it wasn't terrible but there was like dirty dishes in the sink and the bed wasn't made and there's like a couple things on the ground and I was cleaning up and I was like to Ian I was like hey do you want to know something really like messed up and he's like uh I guess what and I'm like every single time I leave the house I clean up because I think like if I was to ever go missing or was killed my family and like people looking into my disappearance would come into my house and see it in the state that I left it. I'm sure other people think that way. They've got to. Right? Cassie? <laughs> Someone out there definitely singing that way, maybe. Like it's not I've like I never I'm... thought of that like when I'm leaving the house, not once. Well, guess not what? Now you will. I and know. it's not like, it's not in any way of like, I think that they're going to, I don't want them to think I'm messy. It's not that. It's just like, I don't know. I just think of like, you know, when you hear true crime stories and disappearances and stuff, like 
they always describe the woman or the man who disappeared their apartment the state quarter slob gets kidnapped you know like it's like they had left they had a half drink cup of coffee on the counter or like what like just different things like that i don't know i just it's just some a thought in my mind that i always think about her house was trashed she left trash okay well now that i feel isolated and weird we're gonna move on no i'm sure i'm sure there really are other people who have thought that way especially who are listening to this podcast it's true so i want to end the series of sad events with a cool story Beverly Sherman was 20 years old when she was traveling in a car with three friends on January 24, 1960. She had just returned home to Washington after spending six months in New York City with her dad and carried with her a suitcase full of her memorabilia that she had collected during her time in the big city. The driver, Dale Steele, was driving a 1950 Dodge sedan when he missed a curve on the winding U.S. Route 101, mile marker 223. The car slammed into the frigid waters. Beverly rolled down the window and swam out as the water quickly rose inside of the vehicle. All four people inside of the car survived. Flash forward to 2002, when the Warren car was found. So the Warrens that were missing for 70 years. Yep. The area of the discovery was near the same set of windy roads where Beverly and her friends experienced their crash. Upon reading the diving team's exploring the Warren car, the Warren's car wreck, she got in touch with a local named Bill Buren in hopes that he could retrieve her suitcase. With nearly 2,000 dives into the lake since 1967, he was happy to assist her and found the car just 200 yards from the Warrens. Wait, so he was the one who found the car? So, okay, I know there's a lot of cars and a lot of things going on here. So in 2002, Beverly is hearing about the Warren's car being discovered in the lake. And she's like, oh, my God, that's so close. The the description of where the Warren car was found was so close to where we crashed into the lake in 1960. So I'm going to contact this diver this local experienced diver to see if he will volunteer and help me go to the car, our car wreck to try and find our car because it hadn't been found. They were, cause they all swam out and were rescued and they, because they all had survived, they didn't try and take the car out. So she's thinking all my stuff is still in there. And I wonder if someone will help me try and locate the car. And, retrieve my stuff so bill buren agreed and he was happy to help her and he found the steel car because remember dan Steele was driving the car she was in Mm -hmm. so the suitcase was pried from the car's trunk and still contained her favorite pair of electric blue suede stiletto heels pieces of lingerie cat eye sunglasses matchbooks, menus, and even an Aurora Borealis crystal teardrop pendant that was still attached to a now-tarnished chain. She says, it's not the necklace from the Titanic, but it's mine. Yeah, so I just thought that was a really cool story of number one of survival, because I can't even imagine plunging into water, ice-cold water. I mean, it's January, yeah, and the lake is already freezing cold. Your car plunges in there, it's sinking, all four of you get out, and then, like, however many years later, 
40 something years later you get all your stuff back that was at the bottom of the lake for so long it's like a little time capsule you go back and you have like your stuff that you remember but you kind of forgot about and then you have it back yeah and you thought it was gone forever and i'm gonna post a picture so i have several pictures for this story i have beverly i have a photo of beverly actually the moment that they're opening up the suitcase like because they retrieved the suitcase from the car put it on a dock and opened it up um so she so she could go through all her stuff so there's a picture of her the moment that she opens up the suitcase and then i have a picture of course of Haley when she was alive and i also have a picture of her body when it was discovered so it's still bound there's a lot of wait like a um, real graphic photo of her body yeah it's a black and white photo she's still wrapped in the blankets she's bound she's hogtied with the ropes and there's still there's a lot of like lake plants and stuff tangled up in her it's not super super graphic so i'll post it i think and i also have a photo of the warrens and yeah so i'll post all that so everyone can get a idea i'm not going to post israel keys because he can we don't need to talk about him or show his face. If you want to learn more about him, you yeah. can go for it. But I don't think he deserves it. So anyways, if you have any stories from Olympic National Park, Lake Crescent, or maybe one of the historic lodges, because the lodges are their own thing. I mean, there's so much history in these buildings that have been around for over 100 years that, you know, were functioning when the park was first established all the way up until now. If you have any experience in any of those, if you stayed there, worked there, please write to us at npadpodcast at gmail.com or submit a story through our listener story link on our website, npadpodcast.com. You can find us on Instagram at National Park After Dark or Facebook at National Park After Dark. So what do you say? You want to go to Lake Crescent with me this summer? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I'm down. Let's, uh... Drive really slow on that road, though. For sure. I okay. I am also not a great swimmer, and I don't like being in water. I like looking at water. I don't like being in it. I like being in warm water. I'm not a polar plunge kind of girl. I'm a eighty degrees or nothing kind of girl. Yeah, (laughs) I definitely agree. I don't know. Even when it's nice, I just rather not. I don't like being wet. Yeah, my favorite. I like swimming if the water's nice and warm and it's hot out. Otherwise, I'm okay. So there it is, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that kind of sporadic story of all the bodies that have been found in Lake Crescent. Again, if you have anything to share with us, whether it be from Olympic, Lake Crescent, or any national park, please reach out to us. So we hope you have a fantastic week. You stay safe and enjoy the view. But watch your back. Bye, everyone. See you next Monday. Bye, everyone. I thought the old lady dropped it into the ocean in the end. Well, baby, I went down and got it for you. Aw, you shouldn't have. Oops, I did it again to you. I got lost. (laughs) There it is. There it is.